Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Since the summer of 1982, there has been so much spilled ink about Ridley Scott's Blade Runner that it isn't really necessary to add more to the record. Still, having seen the movie numerous times since the late 1980s, and in several versions dating back to 1992, the most recent being a repeat screening of The Final Cut from 2007, I can report that it remains a top-notch entertainment, which remains impressive because it's also a total bummer. Some of that down feeling was cauterized in a narrow way by the Denis Villeneuve sequel from 2017, Blade Runner 2049. But the sustaining value in Scott's Blade Runner lies in its purchase between Philip K. Dick's source novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, 1968, which is similar in premise but otherwise distinctly other in the context of the movie's release. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. Blade Runner went into wide release on just 1,295 screens on June 25, 1982. That weekend, it was ranked number two at the box office with $6.5 million in ticket sales behind Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Then, in its second week with a box office tally of $13.73 million, Other charting titles from early summer 1982 include the Clint Eastwood-starring and directed vehicle, Firefox, the Sylvester Stallone-starring and directed sequel, Rocky III, Toby Hooper's Poltergeist, Nicholas Meyer's Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Bob Clark's Canadian import, Porky's, Patricia Birch's Grease II, and Conan the Barbarian by John Milius. starring a then hardly known superstar of the future, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Nearly alone among these reassuring mass entertainments aimed at teenaged boys, Blade Runner was and is a morass of conflicting ideas about the role of technology in human life and the nature of consciousness. The only other comparable movie of its moment, in terms of bummer tone and thematic ambiguity, was John Carpenter's The Thing, a remake of Christian Nyby's 1951 grinder, The Thing from Another World, starring Kurt Russell in a movie that, like Blade Runner, presents an unhappy ending. Also like The Thing, which was and is well-respected by those who know it, Blade Runner was a spectacular commercial failure that alternately bores some viewers while pushing others into paroxysms of ecstatic reverie. Blade Runner, in all versions, is the story of Rick Deckard, Harrison Ford, a police contractor, or blade runner, who hunts down and kills lifelike robots that refuse to remain slaves to humankind. We're in a dystopian future, 2019 Los Angeles, wherein space colonies exist and much of life on Earth is grim. There is no sunlight anymore due to global environmental spoilage, and there are very few animals left. The urban experience has gone supernova with air cars, super-duper skyscrapers, 
and a total push of marketing and advertising into every nook and cranny of daily existence. Polyglot super cities like Los Angeles are now overrun by an ethnic mixture of Pacific Rim types, and technological integration enhances and attracts from all facets of everyday experience. In this general state of dilapidation, decay, and darkness, Deckard's world is savage and futile. His latest assignment is to hunt down four replicants, artificial robot people in the Nexus 6 line that have decamped from their subordination off-world to Los Angeles, where they intend to reverse the kill switch inside each of them that turns on when they become four years old. The thing is, Deckard no longer wishes to be a Blade Runner, but his old commanding officer pulls in a favor and forces him back into the field. He visits the replicant's creator, an industrialist named Tyrell, Joe Turkle, a wealthy technocrat in the mold of Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Henry Ford, and Mark Zuckerberg, rolled into one, and he meets a benign Nexus 6 model called Rachel, Sean Young. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. It's your birthday. Someone gives you a calfskin wallet. I wouldn't accept it. Also, I'd report the person who gave it to me to the police. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, plus the killing jar. I take him to the doctor. You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. I'd kill it. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? She doesn't know she's artificial, but she suspects it, and it falls to Deckard to sort through her crisis of conscience while dispatching the replicant desperados. First up is an assassin-turned-exotic dancer, Zora, Joanne Cassidy, and then a meathead laborer called Leon, Brian James. The finale of Deckard's search-and-destroy mission is spent killing a pleasure model, Pris, Daryl Hannah, and then hunting, before being hunted by, the replicant's leader, a super-soldier called Roy, Rugger Hauer. In the end, Roy alone sees his final act of saving Deckard from a certain doom as the note of grace that defines his peculiar robot-enhanced humanity. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten houses gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. Then Roy expires due to his kill switch under torrents of acid rain that fall on Los Angeles daily. Deckard leaves with Rachel in tow, knowing that other police know he's fallen in love with her, and we cut to black. We believe Rachel may expire soon since she is Nexus 6, but we are also laden with the realization, in the final cut version that is, that Deckard is also a Nexus 6 model. These layers of knowing 
and not knowing exactly what's happening in Blade Runner have radically shifted across time, depending on what version of Blade Runner a person sees. The original theatrical release famously had a flat voiceover narration by Harrison Ford, then fresh from playing both Han Solo and Indiana Jones, intoning details about life in Los Angeles circa 2019. The director's cut of 1992 abolished the voiceover and reestablished a sense of ambiguity about Deckard's organic nature, which was confirmed through a digital toolbox and scrub of the original negative that resulted in the final cut in 2007. The key fact is that Deckard is a consumer appliance who kills other appliances, and that's the thorny problem that Blade Runner invites us to chew on. He dreams, or so he, or is it we, think, and these dreams are merely expressions of software that animate him as hardware to behave like a Raymond Chandlerian antihero in the LA of tomorrow. It's a lot to sort out, but the thing is, in 1982, people mostly dismissed the movie unless they were turned on by the philosophical musings of the Hampton Fancher David Webb People's script, or blown away by the soundtrack of Vangelis, or overwhelmed by visual texture at the behest of Scott and his production designer Lawrence G. Paul. It was hard to make sense of the performances, save for Howard's scene-chewing and spots of recognition in a set of supporting players like William Sanderson, James Hong, M. Emmett Walsh, and Edward James Olmos, and the futurescape of 2019 seemed a bit much for the early Reagan moment. As a boy during the early 1980s, what I remember about Blade Runner is that it was marketed to kids like me despite its hard R rating for violence, nudity, adult situations, and language. The particular marketing hook was a set of matchbox-like cars modeled on vehicles from the movie. The die-cast toy manufacturer, Erlel, better known now for its line of farm vehicles, licensed the movie's props as a toy line, which is how I first heard of Blade Runner while standing in front of a toy display in Vons, my local grocery store, as my dad filled up the family basket and told me he would not buy the set of four cars despite the fact I needed them or I might die. This phenomenon of creating toy lines for movies was not new, but it was then directly connected with George Lucas's strange genius in withholding such licensing agreements from his one-time employer, 20th Century Fox, the distributor and studio behind his industry-remaking tentpole, Star Wars 1977. This meant that Fox, among leading movie studios, was hell-bent on developing ancillary markets after the success enjoyed by Lucas, who personally profited from three-and-three-quarter-inch-tall action figures that made him not just a film school brat, but also an industrial titan seemingly overnight. There were riches in the non-cinematic play experience of children, and the Hollywood machine of the late 1970s and early 1980s experimented with how best to tap it. The first inkling I had of this weird connection was a line of toys released by 20th Century Fox and connected with Ridley Scott's horror movie Alien 1979. A kid at school brought with him a posable action figure of that movie's eponymous xenomorph, and I distinctly recall asking my parents what the excitement was all about, knowing we were a Star Wars flood zone at home, but then feeling confused when I saw their faces drop at trying to explain to a little boy that Alien is about a monster that kills people and horribly. All of which is to say that Blade Runner ages well. It anticipates the current worries we have about AI, web-based data sharing, the surveillance state, 
fascist government control through message and consumer noise, and the problem of making human connection with our fellow travelers on Spaceship Earth. I screen Blade Runner every few years to see if it lives up to my memories of how good it once was, that toy car hooked turned into a lifelong fascination with Harrison Ford's haircut. What I'm left with, more than three decades later, is that the movie's super city Los Angeles doesn't have many people, but the yearning for connection inside Deckard's journey has only become sharper, as all of us now seek community through screen time, which is really just a set of machines that promise intimacy, but deliver only replications of what we've already seen. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boobity doo.